just to make sure this gets on tape so the tapers can hear this, and that is that the new book, What the Bible Teaches About Spiritual Warfare, that I wrote with Tommy Ice a number of years ago, has been revised and is now available. And uh, those who don't live here can uh, uh, order it from uh, uh, PCBC and uh, just mail in uh, their payment for the book. And those of you who are here, the cost of the book is $10. It's not like other books that we have free of charge because it's published by a mainline publisher. So that makes it a con- uh, commercial endeavor. But uh, if you are interested in a copy, they are available. You can see me after class. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always make sure that we are in right relationship with God, specifically God the Holy Spirit, who fills us and teaches us and illuminates our thinking to understand the Word of God and to bring it to our memory so that we can uh, recall it at times of application and grow towards spiritual maturity. We know that when we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit so that we have to take care of the sin problem and God provides a grace recovery solution so that no matter how horrible or heinous or awful or guilty you might feel because of some some sin you committed, we always are reminded that God the Father knew about that sin from eternity past. Jesus Christ paid for it completely. We do not add to that payment by our guilt feelings or sorrow or any other human factor. We simply admit or acknowledge our sins to God. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin every class with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are indeed prepared to study God's Word under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your superabounding grace. You have given us more than that which is sufficient in order to deal with every problem we will ever face. And you have solved the greatest problem we ever face, which is our separation from you and spiritual death, that we were all born sinners in Adam. And as a result, under condemnation from Adam's original sin, and we are condemned to eternity, separated from you, eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. But you have provided a perfect grace solution in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, who paid the penalty for every sin, so that we could have an eternal relationship with you simply by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, as we continue our study of the work of Christ on the cross and, and all that you have provided for us, we pray that you would challenge us with these things and make sure that we clearly understand the gospel, 
clearly understand what was performed at the cross so that as believers we might be able to clearly explain these things to those who need salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to the uh, 19th chapter of John. Well, let's go to, yeah, let's just stay in John 19. That's where we're going to end up anyway. We are continuing our study of the crucifixion. So far, we have seen the doctrine of the physical suffering of Christ. We asked the question, why was it that Jesus Christ suffered so physically from the beatings, the abuse, the whippings, the flagellation, to um, even the night before Gethsemane during his prayer when he was sweating blood, we uh, were asked the question, is this part of the salvation package? And in one sense, it is. The physical suffering cannot be separated totally from the overall package, but it was not the physical suffering that paid the penalty for sin. We have seen from our study in the uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 17, that the penalty for sin is spiritual death. So that physical suffering and physical suffering cannot pay that penalty. The penalty must be paid in kind. The penalty for sin in Genesis 2.17, God told Adam that they could eat from the fruit of the tree, of the, that if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would instantly die. That death would be spiritual death. And there would be consequences from that death. And that those consequences would include all manner of physical suffering. There would be a transformation of the kingdom of nature, the animal kingdom, plant kingdom. Everything in the universe, in fact, was affected by Adam's decision to disobey God. And one of the consequences outlined at the end of Genesis 3 is that from dust you came, from dust you will return, and that is physical death. So that in his... Physical suffering, Jesus Christ identified with the consequences of sin and demonstrated the sufficiency of the grace of God that under the filling of God the Holy Spirit and on the basis of Bible doctrine in the soul, we could overcome any amount of physical suffering as a result of living in a sinful world, no matter how extreme it might be. We went from there to examine the fact that there were Uh, five different statements of ridicule from the unbelievers surrounding the cross. And we looked at those from the perspective of how they represent the kinds of ridicule that we can expect from unbelievers and from those we are witnessing to, the kinds of questions they might ask. From that, we move to the seven statements of Jesus Christ on the cross, which culminates in the two statements. First of all, it is finished to telestai, which is the perfect active... Uh, infinitive of the Greek teleao, which means that it is all completed. Nothing more can be added to it. It is finished. It is complete. It is all done. The price is paid. Twice he uses that construction before uh, John does in John chapter 19. First to say when Jesus had accomplished everything, then he asked for something to drink, knowing that all things had been accomplished to telestai. And then again, just before his last statement, and then his final statement was, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So we looked at the seven statements of Christ on the cross and showed how they demonstrate the work of Christ on the cross, that he paid the penalty for our sins during those three hours of darkness from 12 noon to 3 p.m. 
So the physical suffering of Christ was related to the physical death and the physical consequences of sin as a result of spiritual death. But he specifically pays the penalty for sin, that is, spiritual death, separation from God, during those three hours of darkness from 12 noon to 3 p.m. when God the Father, in his justice, from the Supreme Court of Heaven, imputed to Jesus Christ every single sin in human history. Nothing was left out. Every single sin was imputed to Jesus Christ, but he is not personally guilty. It is simply judicially imputed to him. Scripture says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. But he nevertheless remains perfect on the cross, and it is during those three hours that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which tells us that he was judicially separated from God the Father during those three hours. But then at the end we see that he is, that, that judicial separation is concluded by 3 p.m. because he returns to say, to addressing the Father as Father. When he says, into thy hand, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And that is an expression, once again, that the intimacy between the first and second person of the Trinity is restored and that the penalty for sin was completely paid for before Christ died physically on the cross. That led us to address the issue of the blood of Christ and the doctrine of the blood of Christ last Sunday morning, where we saw that it is not the physical blood of Christ, the plasma, hemoglobin, red blood cells, white blood cells, that brings about the payment for sin. The term shedding of blood, even if you go all the way back into the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 9 and look at the uh, Noahic covenant where there are, there's the uh, stipulation or the authorization of capital punishment, God says whenever man's blood is shed, uh, man by, by, shed by man, then man by man's hand shall, shall have his blood shed. In other words, the authorization of capital punishment. And the point is the shedding of blood is an idiom for dying, for death. It is not an expression that blood has to specifically be, be spilled. It's not a, a statement that somebody's veins have to be opened and there has to be some sort of bleeding to death. Now, this goes back to an old Roman Catholic heresy that has even been picked up by some Protestants, the idea that, that somehow the angels had a, a golden labor at the cross and they collected all of Jesus' blood and all, that he bled to death on the cross and that that blood was then taken to heaven and secured his and our access into heaven based on the analogy of the priesthood in the Old Testament. And that is just absurd because it, it does not understand the, the nuances of the original language and the idiom factor there that shedding of blood is merely a, uh, an idiom for, for death. And what we saw in our conclusion last time was that in the Old Testament, the physical blood was real and it represented, a, uh, represented the future uh, salvation payment for sin. So the physical blood was real and the salvation was uh, a tentative. It was uh, dependent upon or, or contingent, dependent upon the ultimate uh, payment by Jesus Christ on the cross. So physical is real and salvation was contingent and representative. In the New Testament, the physical blood 
becomes representative and the salvation payment is real. This is because it is Christ's spiritual death on the cross that pays the penalty for spiritual sin so that the physical blood merely is a representation of what takes place in the spiritual realm when Jesus Christ is judged for our sins. So this is always a problem for some people who grow up in some fundamentalist circles that sing songs like there's a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins and those kinds of songs that uh, misrepresent and misunderstand this important figure of speech which where the blood of Christ merely emphasizes his spiritual substitutionary atonement. And so that brings us this time to John chapter 19, and we begin to examine the aftermath of the crucifixion. Jesus Christ has now been judged spiritually for our sins. He has now died physically, and uh, he has committed his spirit to uh, God the Father, and there are several things that happen subsequent to his physical death. So from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. is the time frame in which we're talking about on this particular day. It was at 3 p.m. that he died physically, and he has to be in the grave before nightfall because, as we read in verse 19, because it is the day of preparation. And so we have to understand the significance of that. But what happens before we get to... Uh, John chapter 19 is that we have to see that three other things transpire. There are three miracles that take place. And these are found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 53. The first miracle is that the veil of the temple is split from top to bottom. The veil of the temple was split from top to bottom. Matthew 27, 51 and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, in order to understand the significance of this, we have to go back and understand the structure of the uh, temple. The temple itself is the inner section has two compartments. There is the Holy of Holies, which is where the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the uh, golden candlestick are located. It is the outer room. And in the inner room is the, uh, I mean, the, the outer room is the holy place. The inner room is the uh, Holy of Holies, where you have the Ark of the Covenant. This is where the high priest would enter once a year and at, on the Day of Atonement and place blood upon the mercy seat, which represented the uh, work of Christ in propitiation. Now, what happened is, what, in the construction of this, of the Herodian temple, there's an enormous veil that hangs down from the ceiling separating the holy place from the inner holy of holies. And it was only once a year the high priest went in there. Now this veil represents the fact that man is excluded from the presence of God because salvation has not yet been accomplished. The veil was 60 feet long from top to bottom. It's 60 feet long. It was 20 feet wide, and Josephus tells us that its thickness was the width of a palm. So if you look down at your hand, you can see that your palm is probably four or five inches wide. It was a, a, a intricately woven tapestry of many different colors, and on it was embroidered the, uh, the emblem of the cherubim, and it was about four to five inches thick, so it would be impossible to 
to uh, tear it. This could not happen just because somehow the moths had gotten in there and eaten some of it away and it just sort of uh, decomposed hanging there in the temple. It uh, would be very difficult, in fact, to even cut it unless you had an extremely powerful tool. So it is a miraculous event that the veil is torn from top to bottom, signifying that God is the one who is opening up the access to his presence because Jesus Christ has now paid the penalty in full. So the first miracle that takes place at the time of Jesus' death is that the veil of the temple is split from top to bottom, signifying that the way to God, access to God, is now open because of what Christ has done on the cross. And the way to enter is simply by faith alone in Christ alone. It doesn't involve works. It doesn't involve uh, some sort of bargain with God that you're going to reform your life morally. It doesn't involve participation in any ritual. It simply means to trust in Christ alone. The scriptures are very clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 3.18 makes it clear. It's not by, uh, it's, uh, uh, he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed. The only condition for salvation is to believe, to put your trust in Jesus Christ as the one who is, has paid the penalty for your sins and the one who is able to save you. The second miracle that took place is in the second part of Matthew 27:51, and there is an earthquake. There are... Supernatural signs, we'll turn the projector on, it always uh, appears a little better when the uh, lights are on. I know the scripture says, and John says, that um, men love the darkness rather than the light, but when we, when we don't have the light, we can't uh, learn anything from the overhead, so it'll take a minute for that to, uh, that to come up. Matthew 27:51b says, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So there is a... a, a clear supernatural phenomenon that accompanies the death of Christ on the cross. Not only was there darkness, a thick darkness that covered the face of the earth during the time that he bore the sins of the earth, uh, bore the sins of mankind and his body on the cross so that man could not see the horror and the misery that he was going through during that time, but there is also, uh, subsequent to his death, this, this shaking of the earth. This indicates once something I think that we don't pay enough attention to, and that is the physical dimension to sin. Now, so often we just think, well, sin is something that's just spiritual, but it doesn't affect things spiritually. And yet we've seen this again and again. We've seen it in our study on Wednesday night in the Adamic Covenant in Genesis chapter 3, is that when Adam sinned, that reverberated through the entire universe. It changes the structure of the universe. It changed our physical bodily composition. It changes the way the animal kingdom functions. They move from being herbivores to carnivores, and that affects dental structure. It affects their uh, gastrointestinal system. Women are now going to have pain in childbirth. So there is the beginning of the entire menstrual cycle that wasn't present in the perfect environment of the Garden of the Eden. All of that is a physical consequence of sin. Now there's going to be thorns and thistles and The ground is going to be in an antagonistic relationship to man who was supposed to uh, uh, take care of the garden and produce fruit from the garden and work the garden. Now there's going to be 
a hostile relationship there. So there is a tremendous connection between the, the spiritual rebellion of man and the, the physical earth. And we're, we see in Romans chapter 8 that we're told that the present earth now groans awaiting the manifestations of the sons of God, which of course takes place when Jesus Christ comes back at the uh, second advent to establish the millennial kingdom. And then we will see as a result of his, his second coming that the curse on nature begins to get rolled back. The, the lion will lie down with the lamb. The child will put his hand in a cobra's den. All of those things will happen. So that we can't forget that there is a connection between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And spiritual failure leads to physical catastrophe. And so this is the connection there. And with his death, there is a supernatural uh, phenomenon that takes place with this earthquake. But it doesn't stop with the earthquake. It goes to the third sign, which is the resuscitation of the most unusual evangelists in human history. Matthew 27:52 says that the tombs were opened as a result of this earthquake and many bodies of the saints these were old testament believers who are temporarily resuscitated and that they're not given resurrection bodies they are given uh they're resuscitated from the grave they are made physically alive again but they still go back to the grave so they are not get, they're not resurrected technically resurrection means you're given a new resurrection body that is incorruptible and is not defiled and will live for eternity. They are not given a resurrected body. They are just given a a mortal body, and they come out of the tombs after his resurrection, and they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. So they enter into Jerusalem and witness to what has just taken place outside the city at Golgotha. Now, unfortunately, the Holy Spirit did not tell us anything more about that than those few short statements, and it leads us to a lot of speculation. That must have been a, an incredible event to have been walking along the street and see your long-dead great-great-grandmother come walking up to you and explain the gospel to you. We can only imagine what the consequences of that were like. So Jesus' death was attested by three distinct miracles that took place. The splitting of the veil, the earthquake, and the resuscitated Old Testament saints who evangelized in Jerusalem for a short period of time before they returned to the grave. The second thing that it happens is the evidence of Jesus' physical death. This is where we are in John chapter 19 and verse 31. John chapter 19, verse 31. Jesus has died physically in the previous verse. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit, which went into the presence of God for his protection. And then his physical body was to go to the grave, and that's the process that we're studying this morning. Verse 31, the Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, important parenthetical note, For the Sabbath, that Sabbath, was a high day. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. Now, what is going on here is that 
that these Jewish leaders, and that's the reference to the Jews, this is not some sort of anti-Semitic remark by John. You know, there's always somebody who comes along and says, well, John must be anti-Semitic because he's always using the phrase, the Jews this, the Jews that. Well, John was Jewish. The other disciples were Jewish. They're certainly not anti-Semitic. All they are saying is that, that the, you, he uses the term the Jews as a technical term for the leaders of the Jews that are hostile, hostile to Christ, the, the physical leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And he says the Jews, therefore, because it was a day of preparation. Now, this is a technical term. looks like this in the Greek, paraskuo, P-A-R-A-S-K-E-U-O. And it is a technical term for the day prior to a Sabbath. Now, remember in Israel, let's chart it out this way. Here's the Sabbath. In a Jewish calendar, the day runs from 6 p.m., let's use this as 12 midnight, to 6 p.m. So this would be, for us, Friday would begin at 12 in the morning and end at 12 midnight. But for the Jews, the Sabbath... The Saturday doesn't wait until midnight. It begins at 6 p.m. at dusk. And so it runs until 6 p.m. the next next night. Now, the day of preparation is the day prior to that. During this time, from on a normal Sabbath, it would be on Friday during the day. And it was this time that they would go through the house and they would... Uh, remove any leaven or do all the preparation and get ready for the Sabbath. Now, this is not a normal Sabbath, according to the text. It's a high Sabbath. Now, the importance of that is that traditionally, Jesus is said to have died on Good Friday. But that can be challenged because you don't get three days and three nights in the grave between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning. In fact, I believe Jesus Christ was crucified at 3 p.m. on Wednesday. Now, if you chart this out, you have uh, the day of preparation really began on Tuesday at 6 p.m. and extended until Wednesday at 6 p.m. And it is not until 6 p.m. on Wednesday that Jesus that uh, the Passover begins at sundown. And that is the 14th of the month of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. The, it, Jesus is crucified and pays the penalty for our sins between 12 noon and 3 p.m. And it is at 3 p.m. in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and typology that the Passover lambs are slaughtered or sacrificed in the temple at the same time that Jesus Christ is paying the penalty for sins, the, the, anti, or the type, the, the slaying of the lambs without spot or blemish in the Passover, is being fulfilled by the antitype, Jesus Christ, at exactly the same moment in time. Now then he spends three days and three nights in the grave, and you have to understand, and I'm not going to go into all of the chronology now. If you want to examine that, you can look at uh, Pastor Theme's book, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which we have out in the lobby. I don't want to get wrapped around this. There are a lot of problems with chronology. I've wrestled with this for 25 years. I still hold to a Wednesday crucifixion. I realize that that's not the popular position. 
But I recently was doing some study in another uh, in a book, and um, I was about to go to a Thursday or Friday crucifixion for a number of other reasons. See, we now have computers and we now have uh, precise astronomical data where we can evaluate just and determine just exactly what day of the week the 14th of Nisan fell on in any given year. So we can get out our computers and we can run our programs and we can say in 30 A.D. that the 14th of Nisan fell on a Friday and in 33 it fell on a Friday. And uh, what happens in 32, 33? And I've, I've worked with this for years and, and I've had a lot of problems. And I was reading a re- very technical article uh, that came out about 10 years ago by some astronomers. And uh, But one of the points that they made, which nobody else makes, is that the key to the starting of the new year, the first of Nisan, how do you know when it's the first day of the month? It's because the designated rabbinical official stands up on the temple and he identifies when it's the first full moon of the month. But that's done, that's a lot of human error because it may be cloudy, maybe overcast. He might miss it a day or two. So even if we can run a computer program and determine that according to astronomy, the full moon was on such and such a date, and so the 14th of the month would have been on such and such a day of the week in any given year, that doesn't mean that's the way it was in that year. Because it was identified by human sight. And so there is tremendous room for error and flexibility. And so I think it is still uh, true that according to the a statement that Christ would be in the grave three days and three nights. In order to get three days and three nights, uh, according to both the Roman and Jewish calendar, you have to go with a Wednesday afternoon crucifixion. So Jesus dies that Wednesday afternoon. It is a preparation day for the high uh, Passover, which would begin at 6 p.m. that evening. So we read that, that that Sabbath was a high day, and because it was a high day, they couldn't leave a body on the cross. That would be defiling their law. So they had to get these criminals off their crosses and into the grave before sundown, because once sundown came, because of sabbatical laws, they couldn't do anything about them for the next 24 hours. And the interesting thing about that is that you also have the beginning of the... uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is concurrent with the Sabbath, so that's not only Passover, it's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so it is, it is a double Sabbath in that sense, and they cannot leave these bodies up on the cross. So they go to Pilate and they want their legs broken because that's going to speed up the death process. What happens in crucifixion is that you suffocate to death. You die by asphyxiation as you hang there on the cross. There's a small piece of wood that is affixed to the uh, cross just about the place of the buttocks so that it would give uh, the the, uh, victim a place to rest or to pull up on and just get a little bit of leverage so that he could alleviate the, the pressure on his arms and he could, and the pressure on his diaphragm because as you're hanging there, your, your bowels are pushed up against your diaphragm which limits your breathing and you begin to suffocate to death. So they could use that, that little ledge to just push themselves up a little bit and uh, catch their breath and then, uh, then they couldn't stay on it because it wasn't large enough to carry their weight and then they would collapse and it would pull down on their wrists again and hit that, that carpal tunnel uh, nerve and that biting pain would just flash through their body 
And so it was an extremely painful an excruciating way to die. But they could stay on the cross for as long as four or five days if they were strong and if they were able to continue to breathe. They would be dehydrated and they would be suffering from hunger, but they might last. And that was sort of a goal for the uh, uh, sadistic Roman executioners was to see how long they could keep these guys alive before they, they would die. But the Jews went in and they said, break their legs. Then they wouldn't be able to push themselves up anymore and they would suffocate within just a, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and then it would be over with and then they could take them down off the cross and put them in the grave. So this is what's going on in verse 31. And so the soldiers then, in compliance with uh, Pilate's command, go out and they come to the first man. Apparently they decided to wait on Jesus in the middle last. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man. Now, one of the things that I've uncovered in the, the Roman uh, procedure here is there would be four Roman soldiers assigned to each victim. So what is happening is they decided the order and they took the first uh, criminal, the first robber on, the, on one side, and they broke his legs. And then they went to the other thief on the other side of Jesus, and they broke his legs. And they would take some sort of wooden mallet or club, and they would just come up and just whack them on the shins, and break their legs. So that too was an excruciating way to go, and then they would just collapse from the pain, and that would push their, all of their intestines up against their diaphragm, and they would begin to suffocate to death. But in verse 33, they came to Jesus, and they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Now, this is important fulfillment of prophecy. I've already emphasized that this is Passover, and that Jesus is, in every aspect of his death, is fulfilling the symbolism called typology from the Old Testament sacrifices. This is the word typology, may be unfamiliar to some of you. It derives from the Greek word tupos, which means an example, T-U-P-O-S, and it is an example. And what you have is in prophecy, you have a situation, an event, or a, 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 um, an object in the Old Testament that is designed as sort of an, a visual aid that teaches something about the uh, person and work of Jesus Christ when he would come at the first advent. For example, you have in the tabernacle or, or the temple, you have the uh, Ark of the Covenant, which is made of acacia wood, and then it is covered in gold. And that represents the undiminished deity of Jesus Christ in the gold and the true humanity of Jesus Christ in the wood. And they are united together in one object. You also have the lamb, the sacrificial lamb that is without spot or blemish. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming down to the Jordan, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the picture of that sacrificial lamb that was uh, sacrificed at Passover. So Jesus Christ is fulfilling all of these things. Now, one of the interesting things uh, in the uh, mandates about the, uh, the regulations for the Passover is that no bone of the lamb was to be broken. In fact, if, if in the course of events a bone was broken, then that... Uh, 
then that lamb was no longer used or could no longer be used as a Passover lamb. So there is a typology there that no bone of that lamb would be broken and that portrayed the fact that the sacrificial lamb of God would have no bone in his body broken. Uh, Despite the fact that it was normal procedure, we know from other writings in the first century, that it was normal procedure for the Romans to go along and, and at the end break the legs of the victims on the cross. It was called crurifragium. I'll spell that for you. Latin word. C-R-U-R-I-F-R-A-G-I-U-M. It was called crurifragium, and it was the standard procedure to... I'll leave that up a little longer for you, if you want to write that down. This was a standard operating procedure by the Roman soldier executioners to make sure that the victims were dead. Now, John is making it very clear to us that Jesus had died physically. I want you to pay attention to this because the other writers do not go to this extreme uh, to prove that Jesus died physically. And I think one reason is that the other Gospels, the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written somewhat earlier. They were written between... 55 and 62 A.D., and John is writing in Ephesus as an old man, somewhere around 90, 91, and I think that by that time there was enough of a reaction to Christianity where people were beginning to challenge the whole concept of the resurrection and saying things like they do today, well, he didn't really die. He just passed out on the cross. He just swooned. That's the swoon theory. It was uh, popularized in modern times by a guy named Hugh Schoenfield in a book called The Passover Plot. The idea that Jesus just uh, passed out on the cross from loss of blood and he didn't really die, so there's no real resurrection. We will address that a little more specifically as we advance in our study. But uh, John apparently was having to deal with this even at his at that early stage in 90 A.D. with the fact that people were saying Jesus didn't really die, so he is going to give us a lot of detail here to prove that Jesus did die physically on the cross. That sets us up for next week, which will be Easter in October. You just thought Easter came every spring, didn't you? Well, we're going to have Easter next Sunday, Resurrection Day. So the soldiers come along and they break the legs of the two uh, thieves. And when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. Now, these are trained executioners. This is not uh, some sad sack who just got drafted last week and thrown into the army and, and really doesn't know his latrine tool from his weapon. You know, this is a trained, sadistic executioner. There's four assigned to each Uh, criminal on the cross and they know what dead looks like and so when they come up they have no agenda they're not trying to let Jesus off they would be glad to break his legs and watch the suffering and they were probably quite disappointed that when they came uh, they didn't have to break his legs but one of them decided he was going to have a little fun anyway just to make sure that uh uh, he was dead, and this was also standard procedure. If someone died on the cross, this frequently happened. They would take a, a spear, and they would pierce the side of the victim on the cross in order to see what came out. 
It would also serve to kill them if they weren't already dead, if they had just passed out. So we read in verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Now, because of the way the body is structured, uh, this piercing would come from the right side, according to medical experts, in order to produce this effusion of what appeared to be blood and water. Now, I want you to go back briefly and just look up your column here in your Bible and note that at the end, when, after Jesus said, it is finished, he bowed his head, John says. This is the, uh, this is the aorist active indicative of the verb clino, which means to bow or push forward. And it indicates that when Jesus died physically, he lowered his head and sort of pushed his body forward. That is necessary in order to cause the kind of, of uh, event that takes place in verse 34. It is only when the body is at a certain angle that when the blood would drain from the head and the upper portion of the torso that it would collect at the diaphragm. But in the area that this uses the word side pleura, which you've heard of pleurisy, which is an infection in the lungs, it, it's in the pleura in the side, and so this this uh, blood would collect there and it would begin to separate. Now, there's been a lot of things written about the subject of uh, John's observation of blood and water. And a recent study called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ that was published by uh, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, uh, Minnesota, uh, gives a lot of information on this, but they make an assumption that is common in the literature, and that is to affirm that Jesus died from a broken heart. Because this phenomenon will take place in the heart. When you have a heart attack, in certain circumstances, the heart stops, then blood will collect in the heart, in the uh, uh, ventricle and in the sides of the heart, in the pericardial area, and then when that is pierced, it also separates into serum and blood. And you'll hear a lot of people who will go on and on emotionally about how Jesus paid the penalty for our sins and he died from a broken heart. Now that preaches well, but it doesn't fit the facts. Because you didn't die from a broken heart on the cross, you died from asphyxiation. Now, unfortunately, there was no one around to perform uh, any kind of autopsy on Jesus' body. But we do know from various other studies that have been done on similar types of death that what happens in a, a case of asphyxiation is that the, the flu, all of the blood that's in the upper part of the body would drain down at, if it's at the right angle and just collect above the diaphragm so that when that spear punctured the diaphragm and goes up into the uh, lung area, that this amount of fluid that's collected there and separated into red blood cells and into lymph would then come out. And it's a lot. See, if you just have a puncture of the heart, one of the uh, doctors named Stroud, who wrote a treatise on the physical cause of the death of Christ and its relation to the principles and practice of Christianity, which came out in 1971, emphasizes the fact that if there was a broken heart, you just have this separation in the pericardial area, that that would only produce like about a quarter of a cup of fluid, half a cup of fluid. There's not a whole lot there because it's only draining what's in the heart. But if you have asphyxiation, 
where there's the collection of this fluid above the diaphragm, then there could be as much as a couple of quarts of fluid there. And so as soon as this is punctured by the spear, then it would begin to drain out the side and it would appear to be blood and water lacking the technical, our modern technical medical vocabulary to explain it. But John makes this very clear. Notice what he says in verse 35. He who has seen has borne witness. He said, this is an empirical fact. I was there. I saw this. I know that this is typical of a death on the cross, that when there's been crucifixion, that when they pierce the side, this is what happens to demonstrate that the victim is physically dead. And so this was accepted as evidence of physical death. And so we know that John is making a point out of this to emphasize the fact that Jesus did indeed die physically on the cross. Now we know that, that from the passages of Scripture and what Jesus said that, that he willingly died. I mean, he willed his own death. It would still be from the physiological causes of crucifixion. But that no man took his life from him. And we know that from passages like John 10:17 and 18 where he says, For this reason... The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the Father. So Jesus willingly wills his own death because he has completed the payment for sin on the cross. It is finished. And so he then pushes his body forward, which speeds up the asphyxiation process, and he dies. And then we have the evidence of that physical death given in verses 33 through 35 from an eyewitness account. Now, in, in reference to the uh, swoon theory, I have eight arguments that you can use to, if you ever run into this. Now, you always, as we've gone through our study of John... I've always emphasized the fact that we have to be careful how we witness to people. The point in witnessing is to explain to people what the issue is, and the issue is Jesus Christ. We don't want to get distracted by side arguments, because so often all they are is red herrings that somebody's throwing up in order to uh, distract you or distract me and to keep us from clearly uh, explaining the gospel. discernment because there are people that we are witnessing to that are always going to come up with some kind of question because of something they've heard. And it's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate concern. And we have to be able to answer them. You're going to run into somebody perhaps and they're going to say, well, I heard or I read or I heard some religious guy say that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. There's no evidence for that. He just passed out. Now, that's a legitimate question. Maybe this person's positive, and we've seen many instances when Jesus answered questions of that nature. But you have to exercise discernment, make sure it's not just somebody throwing up an objection for the sake of objecting, but they're seriously interested. So these are the answers. First of all, Jesus could not really have survived the crucifixion. We've seen already what the beating was like. I mean, the, the, the flagellation that took place with, with the Roman whip was such that it laid bare the back. It opened up the... Uh, almost to where you could see the uh, intestines in the back, and the major blood vessels are exposed, and the, the muscles are laid bare, and there would be tremendous infection from that, because I don't think they sterilized the whip before they used it. 
he was almost dead. He was in such a physical state of weakness that he couldn't even carry the, the um, uh, patibulum, which was the cross piece for the cross, up to Golgotha. So the first point is Jesus could not have survived crucifixion. He couldn't have just passed out and then put him in a cold, dank, humid uh, tomb for three days and expect him to walk out looking in the picture, in the picture of health. Roman procedures were very clear to eliminate that possibility. In fact, according to Roman law, the, if, if the person survived and that somehow were to happen, then the, uh, pr- the soldiers who were to guarantee his death would be crucified for failing to carry out the uh, crucifixion. So the first uh, argument against the swoon theory is that uh, the soldiers were going to make sure he was dead because they didn't want to be up there on the cross themselves. Secondly, the fact that the Roman soldier did not break Jesus' legs as he did the other crucified criminals means that the soldiers were sure that Jesus was dead. I mean, these were trained executioners. They knew death when they saw it. Third, John is an eyewitness. So we have an eyewitness account, and there's no reason, legitimate reason, to dispute that. Now, I know liberals come along and say, well, John didn't write it. It was a couple of hundred years later. But even some liberals have come back to recognize that that there is no evidence to date John beyond about 95 A.D. So John is an eyewitness, and he certified that blood and water came from Jesus' pierced heart, pierced side, pierced lung. Fourth, the body was totally encased in winding sheets and entombed. We'll see that in the next few verses, that they wrapped Jesus up, and plus they loaded him down with about 75 pounds of spices, And so in his weakened condition, he would have to get out of all of that, and he just would simply not have the strength to do that. Fifth, the post-resurrection appearances took these uh, scared, frightened uh, disciples who had run away from Jesus and convinced them that he had indeed risen from the dead, and most of them died for that proposition. Not one of them recanted even under the most extreme torture. There's not one disciple who even hinted that Jesus might not have really risen from the dead. So it was a convincing appearance of the resurrected Jesus. And then point six, a weak and feeble Jesus could not have overpowered the contingent of Roman guards. Furthermore, the stone that was outside of the tomb weighed about five or six hundred pounds. He could not have moved that out of the way. And so it's just ridiculous to even think that that, uh, someone who had been gone through this level of torture could have managed to escape from that kind of confinement. And that's point seven as well, that he couldn't have overpowered the guards. And point seven, he couldn't have moved the stones, which weighed several hundred pounds. So in verse 35, we read that John has witnessed this and he testifies to this. And he says there's a purpose to this. Verse 36, these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled that not a bone of him shall be broken. Now this, as I have stated earlier, is a fulfillment of Old Testament type as well as specific prophecy. In Exodus 12:46, we read, referring to the uh, Passover lamb, it is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. And then in Numbers 9:12, they shall leave none of it, that is the Passover lamb, until morning, nor break a bone of it according to all the statute of the Passover. They shall observe it. 
And then the prophecy and the quote comes specifically from Psalm 34:20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And then the second prophecy in John 19:37, John writes, again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And this fulfills Zechariah 12:10, which reads, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And then Revelation 1-7, which is at the second coming of Christ, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So Jesus is physically dead on the cross. There can be no doubt about that. And this causes the next stage, which is the burial of Jesus Christ. John 19.38, we read, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee like Nicodemus, but they had kept their faith in Christ secret. They were not going to expose their faith in him, but they were secret disciples. What happens here is as a result of Christ's death on the cross, it has an impact on the people watching. It has an impact on the centurion who says that this is the Son of God. This is a righteous man. And the centurion responded by faith alone in Christ alone, and he became a believer at that instant watching the crucifixion. It had a reaction from Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They no longer held their trust in Christ's secret, but they came out of hiding and took care of the burial of the body. Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. Now, we know from examining uh, similar passages or the, uh, in the synoptics that what happened was that, that uh, Joseph of Arimathea apparently had a private garden that he owned near the place that Jesus was crucified. And in that garden, he had prepared a tomb for himself, and it was a rock-hewn tomb. And so he decided that since uh, time is of the essence here and we have to get the body off the cross and in the grave then I'm going to donate my, uh, my tomb for that purpose. And so they took down uh, Jesus' body. We see a picture of Joseph, these two Pharisees, Joseph and Nicodemus, going to the place of crucifixion, taking the body down, taking the nails out of the arms, taking him off the cross, and then washing the body according to Mosaic law, and then wrapping it and preparing it, for the grave. Now, we don't know if they did that by themselves or if they had some help because we know that, that Mary and Magdalene and Martha were there and they might have helped some. But all we know is in verse 39 that Nicodemus came along to help. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Now, according to the Roman way of figuring things, the, the pound, according to Joseph, uh, Josephus, uh, weighed about eight ounces. According to other records, it weighed about, it was about twelve ounces. So, this would be somewhere between fifty and seventy pounds of spices. Now, there are two different terms in Greek for myrrh. 
And both of them are used in burial accounts of Jesus. Luke uses the term miron, which refers to an ointment or oil that has been mixed with a fragrant substance and is used in burial. And often what this was, this was mixed or wiped onto the linen that was wrapped around the body so that it, would, it was a real gummy, resinous substance and it would harden around the body and help provide some, uh, some perfuming during decomposition. Then there is a second term, which John uses here, smyrna, which refers to a dry powder that was made by pulverizing the gummy resin that comes from the stubby plant called the Comnifora abyssinica, which is a bush of the balsam family that grows in South Arabia. And it was used in incense and cosmetics and perfume. And often that was just, just covered. They, they would wrap the body. They would put the oil in with the, with the linen wrappings. And then they would cover the body with the powdered perfume of the, of the myrrh and the aloe. The aloe comes from an uh, aromatic powdered wood from the core of the plant Achillaria agalocha, which is an eaglewood tree native to Southeast Asia. And there's evidence that this was imported into uh, Bible lands from at least as early as the time of Solomon. And this was used again and mixed with various uh, other uh, substances like cassia, cinnamon, nard, and myrrh in the preparation of a body. So this is about 75 pounds of, uh, of powdered, uh, perfumed uh, spices that were taken and you would lay the body out and after wrapping it up with the cloth and then you would cover it with, with all of these powdered spices, so just a mound there. So the, if Jesus were going to come out of that, he would have to untie himself and then crawl through, get out from under this 75 pounds of, of spices. Now, John 19.40 is a fascinating verse for us because it, it says something or it plays for this whole thing with the Shroud of Turin. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings. Now, the Synoptic Gospels say they bound it in a cloth. But here you have the word, uh, in, in, the, um, in the Greek, you have the term athenia. Looks like this in the Greek, O T H O N I A, and it's it's in the plural, in this which indicates strips of cloth. Whereas the other Gospels use a phrase such as uh, an inaline and intulicine, which are verbs that just indicate that a a cloth was laid over the body. So apparently, not only was there cloth laid over the body, but also strips of cloth where they would tightly wrap up and bind the hands, the arms, the legs, the limbs, and the torso itself, and then a cloth was laid over the face. So if that's the case, if that's a correct understanding of that word, and that's difficult, it is the meaning of it's greatly debated because it's not used much, that um, it would argue against the Shroud of Turin being the burial cloth of Jesus. But again, we just can't be certain. The evidence is somewhat uh, disputed. Verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. That, of course, fulfills some prophecy. And therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. 
So Jesus is dead. He has died physically. Now he is buried. His followers have scattered. But nevertheless, we know from John's account that several prophecies have been fulfilled from the Old Testament. And we are reminded that that over 150 prophecies were literally fulfilled at the first advent and over 50 prophecies were filled during the crucifixion. And the chances of even 10 prophecies from as ancient a time as they were given for as many as 10 prophecies to have been fulfilled in one event like that is the chances of filling up a place the size of Texas with silver dollars to the height of four feet. That would be billions of silvers of dollars. I forget what the... 10 to the 20th power and, the, and marking one of them and, and stirring that into that whole pot and then uh, sending a blindfolded person in, the chances of them picking that one silver dollar the first time, which is statistically impossible, is equivalent to only 10 prophecies being fulfilled in one person. So, so when you get to uh, 50 prophecies fulfilled in one person, it's impossible and that demonstrates the validity of the Old Testament prophecies in Jesus Christ being the absolute fulfillment of all of the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament and therefore the unique person of the universe and our Savior who died on the cross for our sins. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word and to understand that it is true. It is absolute truth. Jesus said, Thy word is truth. That he is who he claimed to be. He is not someone who just masqueraded as Messiah. That he is not simply some religious figure or some uh, uh, prophet, but that he is indeed the unique person of the universe, the eternal Son of God who went to the cross, and there he died as our spiritual substitute to pay the penalty for our sins. Father, we do pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure. All you need do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Scripture says that as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be called the sons of God. When Paul was asked, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It doesn't involve good works, church membership, ritual, or any other human factor. It simply involves faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that those of us who are believers would be challenged by what we have learned, that we might be motivated to continue to pursue spiritual growth, advancing to spiritual maturity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.